0: Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf and Gruber, Let's get radical about philosophy. so much for tuning into Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Associate Professor Imogen Gould and Dr. Cressida Auckland. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Beth. Could you give us a little bit of background information
0: about yourselves? Um, Shall I go first? So, um, I'm Imogen Gould, I'm originally from Tasmania, I studied law and modern history at the University of Tasmania, and then I did my PhD there as well, um, which was about owning body parts and using property law to regulate body parts. Um, I then went on to Monash and did a master's in bioethics, um, and I worked at the Australian Law Reform Commission as a legal officer for a few years on genetic information privacy. Um, in 2004 I came to Oxford and I'm now a fellow at St Anne's College and an associate professor in the Faculty of Law and I work on all sorts of things related to medical law, particularly capacity and children.
2: And my background is also in Law. So I started out doing a law degree at the University of Oxford. Um, And then I was so taken with medical law, having studied it in my last year, that I abandoned my aspirations of a career in commercial law and went and did a medical law master's instead at King's College London. And it was during that time, really, that I became very interested in mental capacity and mental health issues. And so I then went back to Oxford to do a PhD looking at mental capacity and lots of the issues that I think we're going to talk about today Um, and after that I moved to the London School of Economics where I'm Associate Professor in Medical Law and look at various issues to do with with medical law more generally but also specifically end-of-life decision making.
1: So what is mental capacity?
0: So mental capacity refers to whether or not someone is cognitively so mentally able to make decisions for themselves And what what we mean is decisions about their care, so in a medical context, what treatments they might accept, but it also means their financial and their administrative matters. Now where someone has mental capacity, we say they've got legal capacity. So if you're able to think about things, you've got that capacity, you're allowed to make decisions that affect you legally. So your decisions are legally binding. You can sign a contract, you can get a mortgage, all sorts of things um, are legally binding on you. Now, different jurisdictions do the capacity slightly differently in the UK. We have a presumption that people have capacity. So we start from the perspective we think somebody's capacitous, and then that presumption, that assumption will be displaced. Um, if certain things are true. Now we if there is some impairment in the way they function um, then we will say they're not able to make a decision and various things will happen legally and in terms of who will then be able to make a decision for them. And the way we think about capacity here is one thing that someone needs to have to have capacity is that they can understand the information that's given to them, so information about the nature and the consequences of a decision they also have to be able to retain that information for long enough to be able to make a decision, and they have to be able to use it and weigh it in a process of forming a decision. So it's not just the case they can pack back information to you, but they have to be able to remember it and then use it actively and communicate that decision. So someone might be mentally capacitous in the sense that they can think about things, but they can't communicate it to you. They would be incapacitated in that sense. Or they might be able to verbally speak to you, but they're not able to use and weigh the information. So they might be incapacitated. In a different way now victoria interestingly for you Beth, applies the same criteria for deciding if somebody has capacity and we can think about how someone might lose that capacity some people might never have had those that capacity they might never have been able to understand the information other people can come to lose their capacity and it might be through illness or age or they might lose consciousness so they're unable to communicate with you and you can also see when we come back to it later on that children might have some of these aspects of capacity and and others they may not have. And you can see easily how children, as they get older, might gain some of these elements of capacity.
3: Uh, Could
1: you explain about the law's cliff-edge approach to mental capacity?
2: Yeah, so in the UK, we draw a really bright line between people who have capacity to make decisions and people who don't. So for those who have capacity, as Imogen explained, they're permitted to make decisions themselves. So their consent must be sought for any treatment or care interventions. And their right to bodily integrity means that they're entitled to refuse any treatment, regardless of what their reasons are, and even if it will end in in their death. And that's backed up by a series of quite serious legal consequences if you attempt to treat someone or or, um, impose any kind of medical intervention specifically without their consent so it would amount to the tort of battery for example which is a form of trespass to the person if you intentionally and directly inflict force on someone but it would also be a breach of article 8 of the european convention on human rights which is binding in uk law which protects a person's right to private and family life, um, which has been held by the courts to encompass their physical and and psychological integrity. Um, So strong protections, if you're found to have capacity, for those who are found to lack capacity, however, a decision will be made for them by either the doctor or a judge, Um, it might be a social or care worker, Um, and they'll make that decision on the basis of um, what they consider to be in that person's best interest. And although that's not defined in the act, um, the case law makes clear that we mean their welfare in kind of the widest sense. So not just medical, but also social and psychological. And that decision must take into account their wishes and feelings, but that's just one of the things that a decision maker needs to consider. So there's no obligation on them then to do what the, the person wants. And that's why we sometimes talk about it as being a cliff edge, because for those who, if you like, are on top of the cliff edge, Autonomy and self-determination dominate, whereas for those who fall over the cliff edge, someone else's view of what is best for them will be imposed upon them.
0: Yeah, and I think that that, that's our approach here. But there's other jurisdictions that don't adopt such a sharp line, um, which is interesting. So some have sought to soften this cliff edge. Um, uh, So Victoria is a good example, uh, along with many states in Canada, that instead what they try to do is have a system where they support people who've got a cognitive impairment to make their own decisions. So instead of simply saying you've lost capacity, therefore now the decisions are made for you, what they do is they... They see it as well. These are people who, with sufficient support, could be helped to make a decision for themselves. So, maybe to help them weigh it. Um, they might say, well, What are you weighing in this way and that way? And think about these things, sort of support their decision making. Uh, and so, as a result, there's a number of laws in Victoria, and people can. Um, put a point for themselves a supporter who will assist them with their decision making and then only if with the support they're still unable to make a decision will the decision be made for them so you've got this this staged approach before you you take the approach that we take here which is to simply put a decision on top of on top of them
1: is there any way a test can distinguish between autonomous and non-autonomous decision making
2: so this is a really complex question and it's one of these cases are examples where um, it's very, when we try and translate a philosophical concept into a legal framework, we lead to certain problems or inconsistencies. So if you look at most of the influential modern accounts of autonomy in the philosophical literature, people like Harry Frankfurt or Gerald Dworkin, what you see is that for a decision to be autonomous, it must be guided by values, beliefs, or desires that are authentic to that person. So simply making a choice is not enough to be autonomous. The choice has to in some way reflect the person's underlying values or or priorities. So in order to make an autonomous choice, the person needs to be able to understand the nature and consequences of the decision, but they also need to be able to evaluate that information in light of their own values, beliefs, and, and desires to reach a decision that in some way reflects their conception of what is good or or valuable. But translating that philosophical ideal into a legal criteria for a test for capacity is very difficult. So for a start, I mean, what does it mean to be authentic? And certainly philosophers have very different ideas about what authenticity demands. Um, Of course, it's the case that our values and beliefs about the world are shaped by all sorts of things throughout our life. And how do we distinguish those influences which help to form a a sense of who we are as a person from those that undermine our capacity? And even if we can, in principle, distinguish um, authentic from inauthentic values or beliefs, how do we devise a legal test that manages to do that consistently and accurately? Because there's obviously a risk from a legal perspective that if you try and empower capacity assessors, to decide that someone's belief is inauthentic to them, and so can be overridden, um, that's going to give rise to concerns that uh, the test for capacity could be used as a tool to to impose paternalistic decisions. So it's it's one thing from a philosophical perspective to say, this is what a truly autonomous decision ought to look like. But it's quite another thing um, to, to try and devise a legal test that that means that a third party can come in and say of someone else's decision, well that doesn't meet the standards of authenticity that we would expect and say that person can't take those decisions for themselves. And it's as a result of these difficulties that at the moment the test for capacity in the UK but but elsewhere too, doesn't look at whether or not the the decision reflects authentically held values. So it asks only whether a person's decision-making processes are intact in the sense that the person can perform certain cognitive tasks, as Imogen said, understanding, retaining, using and weighing information. It doesn't ask about what the substance or origins of the person's values and beliefs are, or whether the decision that's reached is, is one that we think is authentic to the person. So I think that's the really big challenge we're trying to, to capture the philosophical notions of autonomy within a, within a legal test and a legal framework.
1: Are there any concerns about that approach?
0: Yeah, I mean, the big concern about it is if you apply it too stringently, then you end up with a situation where someone has legal capacity, but they're actually acting on the basis of of beliefs that are inauthentic um, or inauthentic values or values that might be problematic. So a good example would be someone who is anorexic. In in one sense, their, their beliefs are authentic in the sense that they genuinely believe them. But we might also say that there's internal incos- inconsistencies that they might not want to die, but they also might not want to eat. So you have this this internal conflict that you might say is irrational or problematic or disordered. But if you just said, well, do they authentically hold these beliefs? Well, the answer would be yes. And so that's where this stringency would be a problem. And we see it in cases like um, RET, We see it with patients who are depressed. All of those disordered beliefs are not beliefs that they don't hold but the reasons that they might believe them to be true um, are are problematic reasons. And so if we were just thinking in terms of, uh, do they really believe it? That's the problem is it doesn't really get us to an answer that is is fully satisfactory. And of course, doctors and judges are often trying to deal with this problem. They're they're fully aware of this. And so we see a lot of the time, some, what you might say is almost manipulation of the test of capacity in particular context to try to work through this. So a good example of quite a controversial case in this country um, is the case of Essence and George. And this is about a woman who is um, seemingly quite depressed um, and not wanting to have a C-section when she needed one uh, because she had preeclampsia. And in that, you know, there's a lot of debate about what the doctors did there in determining that she lacked capacity, whether or not she, she did, because she was expressing views that at one level seemed autonomous, she was articulate, she clearly held them very strongly, they seemed authentic, but at the same time, there was a lot of contextual information that suggested that she was actually depressed and, that, and the foundation of those views was itself disordered. How we then respond to that is, is the complexity Because on one level, we're trying to respect that people are authentically saying, this is what I believe, but at the same time, trying to respond in a way that is caring and protective of people that we might say say are vulnerable. And I think this is the the really complex thing that our work is is dealing with.
1: You mentioned that for, for those who lack capacity, decisions are made in their best interests Do you think this strikes a good balance between empowering and protecting people who do lack capacity?
2: Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, although best interest isn't defined um, in in the Act, in the Mental Capacity Act in the UK, it does set out a number of factors that must or must not be taken into account by the decision-making when you're trying to work out what's in someone's best interest. And that includes um, a number of things, including the person's past and present wishes and feelings and the beliefs and values that would likely influence their decision if they had capacity. But crucially, in the act, um, none of these factors are supposed to take priority. So it isn't the case that, you know, their wishes and feelings is the main thing. And there's a list of priority in in which you take these things into account. And that means that it's left to each individual decision maker to decide how would they weigh up the factors? What do they think is most important? And that means that you might, that in practice, what we see is that people's wishes and feelings are often outweighed by a desire to, to protect them from certain risks. Now, I think in ter- does it strike the right balance? Well, I think certainly in recent years in the courts, um, we've seen some very empowering decisions um, that have placed quite a lot of weight on people's wishes and feelings. So, one case that's been particularly important is a case called y-, y Valley and Mr. B. And this was an old man with paranoid schizophrenia who had been had, having auditory hallucinations for many, many years that he could hear the voices of the Virgin Mary and, and of angels. And he devised a whole belief system uh, around these, these voices. And he was clear he didn't belong to a particular religion. But these beliefs were nonetheless very important to him and they even he even credited them with stopping him from committing theft. And so the issue in this case was whether or not he um, had the capacity to consent to an operation to amputate his foot, which was necessary to save his life, but he was very resistant to. And he was resistant to it because he thought that God, he said that God did not wish for him to have, have the operation. And it's an important, decision because in that case the judge decided that although he did lack capacity it was nonetheless in his best interest to respect his wishes so he explained that his religious beliefs are deeply meaningful to him and the fact that they um, arise from an auditory hallucination doesn't mean that they warrant any less respect that we might think anyone else's religious beliefs do so that's a a clear example of where we have had the empowering decisions. The difficulty is really the best interest decisions that are being made on the ground, because unlike the judges, um, doctors and care workers fear the legal consequences of their actions. And they're often faced with really difficult situations um, where people want to do things. People who lack capacity wish to do things that will expose themselves to a risk of harm. And the question is, do we let them do that? Um, and, And the problem, I think, is that given that there's no priority given to people's wishes and feelings, what that means in practice is that it would be almost impossible for a decision to be impugned or challenged on the basis that it didn't give sufficient weight to their wishes and feelings. But if you gave substantial weight to their wishes and feelings, for example, through respecting their refusal of life-sustaining treatment as in Y Valley or allowing an old lady with dementia to live at home rather than in a care home, and then that person suffers harm as a result, then the doctors and social workers fear that they might be sued for negligence. So um, given that it's not really surprising that all the evidence shows that decisions being on the ground tend to be quite cautious and risk averse and not very empowering for patients um, for patients who lack capacity because the law is framed in this way that gives clinicians greater protection if they go down the more paternalistic, cautious route um, than if they, if they try and do what, what the patient wants.
1: Are there any changes that you think could be made that would better empower people who lack capacity in decisions about treatment and care?
2: Yeah, so it's, a, it's a very difficult balance to strike, because clearly people have been found to lack capacity for a reason. Um, you know, the, the point is, we don't think that they can make decisions to protect their own interests. But capacity is not an on or off switch for whereby the person's values and beliefs and priorities that have have guided them throughout their whole life suddenly become extinguished. Um, so, just because you've been found to lack capacity doesn't mean you don't still have the same beliefs and values as you did before. It's also not the case that because you lack capacity, you also lack awareness of the fact that decisions are being imposed on you. So to force to be forced into a care home, for example, when you want to live at home or to have your bodily integrity infringed by medical intervention is no less traumatic for someone who, who lacks capacity than it is for anyone else. Um, And so with that in mind I personally would like, I think Imogen agrees, she may agree, to see the law amended so as to give the decision makers more leeway to make decisions which prioritize a person's strongly held wishes even where they may pose a a risk to the person. And one way of doing that might be through imposing a, a presumption in the act whereby the person's wishes and feelings will define what their best interests are except where giving effect to them will expose the person to a serious risk of significant harm. So in any cases where it's not clear that there'll be substantial harm um, by doing what the person wants, we go with that. Now, of course, even then, even when the harms are significant, there will still be occasions where we think that the person's wishes and feelings ought to take precedence where to do otherwise would involve frustrating deeply and authentically held beliefs so so one example that we might use would be if someone who had been a jehovah's witness throughout their life a devout jehovah's witness who didn't believe in blood transfusions and then they um, got dementia or they suffered a car accident and they and they um, lost capacity we might still think that their beliefs ought to be given great weight and that we ought to respect their beliefs and allow them to continue to, to live in accordance with these values and beliefs. And in these situations, um, so, so, so one solution could be to say, well, we, we alter the level of weight we give to people's wishes depending on the strength of, of those views. So if it's a deeply held belief that they've held for some time and we ought to accord it great weight, um, whereas if they've suddenly decided for some reason one year they don't want to take a flu jab and they can't provide any reasons for that, then we might give it less weight. Um, so those are some some ways that we might want to look at it. But I certainly think it's an area where the law would benefit from being reformed to strike a, a more ethically acceptable balance.
1: And best interest is the same test that applies when making decisions about children. How does making best interest decisions for children differ from adults?
0: So I think that's a, that's a really interesting question, following off of what Crest has been saying. One of the things that's really clear when we deal with adults is that we can often if they're people who have lost capacity, or if they're able to communicate, even if they're not fully capacitous, you can discern what their values are. Now we all have different values. So you might value having a long life, and I might value having a, I might be happy with a shorter life that's that's got more quality to it. So you might want to hang on for as long as you can, even if you're in pain, and I might want to have a short shortened lifespan that's pain free, right? So we might make different choices about that and the way we deal with adults is we let them make those decisions for themselves right we let us have subjective approaches to life you can eat chocolate ice cream i can eat vanilla ice cream we just mind our own business and leave each other alone to do that the the problem with children when you make best interest decisions for them is you can't often discern what those values were so you can't do so much what Cressida is saying, where you look to well, what were this person's values? How can I translate those into my decision making about them? Because for very, very young children, they simply probably don't have them um, or they're too young to have communicated them to you. So if they're very young, they can't even have told you. If they're older, you might um, have a degree of scepticism about how deeply or strongly or, or held they are. So, you know, anybody who knows any small children will know that they make all sorts of irrational value decisions, right? So if you let them eat whatever they like, they eat ice cream all the time, obviously that might be valuable to them. It's not good for them. So you've got this quite a different complexity there. And so when you're making a best interest decision, essentially you can't just look at what was valuable to them. You are actually making what are effectively more objective decisions. And sometimes what that can mean is that you're imposing values upon them. And so one of the things that becomes difficult for decisions about children is you get into conflicts where the courts might have a very different view of what is good for a child from the hospital and from the parents. And that's where these really um, difficult conflicts arise, where the parents think one thing is good for the children and the courts think another thing or the doctors think another thing is good for the children. And that's why these discussions, these, these conflicts are so intractable, is because it's not necessarily the case that either of them is wrong. They simply disagree about what is what is valuable. And that's the question that Chris and I are particularly interested in at the moment is how do we navigate our way through that to decide who ought to be the one whose values um, are the Trump? And this is why, again, we you know we we would agree to draw on this idea of significant harm, that rather than simply deferring power to to the courts. We've argued um, in a range of papers that actually parents are probably more legitimately and better placed to decide what is subjectively valuable for a child. And that should only be displaced quite um, if this threshold of harm is crossed. And at the moment in English law, that threshold is very low and we think it should be higher um, because uh, we think that that is a better way to decide for children than to hand it off to a court that doesn't know the child and is not actually in the situation with the child.
1: Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Do you have any future study plans within this field?
0: Um, we do because happily we agree with one another. Um, and so our plan is our next bit of work once Cresta's finished her current piece of work and I've finished mine is we're going to write a book all about this and how we should navigate these, these um, complex decisions about children.
1: Oh, Fantastic. Oh, well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today.
2: Thank you very much for having us
0: thanks for having us
1: and i've been speaking with associate professor imogen gould and dr Cressida auckland about mental capacity
3: okay <laughs>